Baptist Church of Fisherville. Thanks for joining us again over live stream. We want to be called to worship this morning from Psalm number nine, the first couple of verses. Today is a, a great day. It's still the day of the Lord. We want to come together and worship, even if we have to do so over the internet, uh, hopefully for not too much longer. We'll be in contact with you about that, obviously. I know we're all anxious to be back together. Um, Today we get to hear from Dr. Payne on the, the confrontation between Nathan and David uh, in the preaching part of the service, which is really the apex of Christian worship when the Word itself is preached. And so let's be called to worship with the Word this morning. And the psalmist writes, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wondrous deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. So wherever you are, let's do that this morning. Stand amazed. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall
Let's pray. Father, to revel in the love of our Savior, to sing the song of the love of our Savior, can only be truly stirred by understanding our condition prior to our redemption. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at work in the sons of disobedience. All of us also were at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. We were alienated and enemies in our minds by wicked works. And yet, by no merit of our own, no intentionality on our part, the Lord Jesus Christ came and reconciled us to you, a holy God, by his incarnation, his obedient, righteous life, and his substitutionary death on the cross where sin's wages were paid to him in our place, dying so that we do not have to. And then being raised from the grave, signaling that the debt had been paid. Indeed, our Lord Jesus Christ was vindicated by his resurrection. And for those of us who by grace through faith in Christ have been vindicated in Christ. And that's why we sing how marvelous, how wonderful is our Savior's love for us. We pray that that love would warm, would stir our hearts this morning. We pray that the expulsive power of a new affection provoked by the Savior's love would stir us to, to worship you this morning in spirit and in truth, that your name would be magnified in the face of your Son. We pray that your people, even as they worship, would be sanctified. And those who have not yet trusted in Jesus today would be saved as they muse upon the Savior's love. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would attend to and illumine and empower all that is done this morning. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.
no greater love, grace, how can it be that in my sin, yes, even death, he shed his blood for me, oh, of Jesus washes me, oh, oh, the blood of Jesus shed for me, what a sacrifice that saved my life, yes, the blood, it is my victory, it was a sacrifice that saved my life, yes, the blood. Church, this morning, as we said earlier, uh, during the sermon, Dr. Payne's going to be preaching through 2 Samuel chapter 12, where Nathan confronts David. We've been building up to this confrontation, and really it's a chapter for all of us to think through what it's like to be confronted with godly conviction and how a believer responds. And I'd like to think that the songs that we sing this morning, from standing amazed in the presence of Christ to exalting Christ because of the accomplished work through his shed blood on the cross, and even now, he's applying his accomplished work by his ongoing intercession. One of the greatest truths of Scripture is that he will not let one of his sheep go. And so I'd like to think if David were here with us this morning, he would join us in singing, He Will Hold Me Fast. Because in the face of sin, this is exactly what he needed to hear and us too. Let's sing together. When I fear. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast.
So my soul. 
Well, good morning, Fisherville. If you would turn your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We'll be looking at the first 15 verses this morning. Thank you for Barry and our worship team for leading us in worship, preparing us for worship through the preaching of God's Word, the hearing of God's Word. So let's pray and ask the Lord to prepare our hearts, even as He has already prepared our hearts through song. Father of mercy, it is times like this when for the last eight weeks we've not been able to gather with our church family. In the midst of a pandemic, a health crisis, a financial crisis, that we are reminded that you alone are our strength and our shield. And we pray that this morning indeed would our spirit yield to your word impressed on our hearts by your spirit, the very spirit of Christ. Indeed, we come to you this morning, Father, in your son, Jesus Christ, our prophet, priest, and king, our mediator, and we come by your spirit. And we worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we pray that we could behold you today. That's what we need above all things, to behold you in your Son. And we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. This past Thursday, April the 30th, was not only... Heather's and my anniversary, but more ominously, was the 75th anniversary of Adolf Hitler's suicide in his bunker in Berlin, which would have been a very unhappy 52nd birthday on that day for his foreign minister, Joachim von Ribbentrop. This meant for the Nazi party that it was at its end. All hope was officially lost. Now, Ribbentrop, his foreign minister, was instrumental in starting World War II and in enabling the Holocaust. And now his boss, Hitler, dies in hopelessness and shame on Ribbentrop's 52nd birthday. Well, just a few weeks later in June of 45, and after the end of the war, V-Day in, in Europe in May, Ribbentrop was arrested. And at the Nuremberg trials, Ribbentrop was found guilty on four counts. Conspiracy, crimes against humanity, crimes against peace, and war crimes. He was sentenced to death, and rightly so. He deserved capital punishment. But what if I told you that this man, Ribbentrop, although he did receive the right wages for his 
sins and his crimes, but he also died forgiven by God. Indeed, when Ribbentrop was first arrested, he disdained all things pertaining to our Lord Jesus Christ. He disdained Christianity. He disdained the gospel and the word of God. But God had sent him a preacher whose name was Pastor Henry Gorecki. And in time, Ribbentrop, along with a few other Nazi war criminals, beheld the glory of God in Christ. They saw their need for a Savior in Jesus Christ, and they were converted. They repented of their sins, and they trusted in Jesus alone. And so a church was planted within the prison in Nuremberg, a church that would meet regularly until mid-October 1946, when most of the members of this church would be hung. Indeed, in the early hours of October the 16th, 1946, Pastor Gorecki visited members of his small congregation in Nuremberg Jail, a congregation that was about to be rightly executed for committing some of the most wicked crimes in history. And one by one on that day, October the 16th, Gorecki would walk his congregants to the gallows. The first was Ribbentrop. And when the noose was placed over Ribbentrop's neck, he was asked to speak his final words, and here's what he said. I place all my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sins. And so there was forgiveness of sins as Ribbentrop repented and, and trusted in the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. But there was also severe consequences to his sin. This can be true of the same person. And we see that today with King David. Now in chapter 11, we saw that David entered sin's labyrinth. And every choice he made got him deeper and deeper into that labyrinth. In chapter 11, David is doing life without God. He has silenced the fear of God in his heart. That is a frightful place to be. And chapter 11 concludes with as ominous a line as you will see in all of Scripture. The end of chapter 11, verse 27, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord was very privy. He was very aware of all that had taken place. And that brings us to chapter 12. And chapter 12 begins remarkably with mercy's pursuit of David. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now throughout chapter 11, a chapter that is largely godless in that all of the various characters in that chapter 
are doing life without God. Again, God's name is only mentioned once. We see this verb, though, sent 12 different times. So, for instance, in verse 1, it says, David sent Joab. In verse 3, David sent and inquired about the woman. Verse 4, David sent messengers and took her. Verse 6, David sent word to Joab. Joab sent Uriah to David. And on and on it goes. Twelve times we see that word sent, but it's all godless activity. Life without God sends you only further into sin's labyrinth. And ultimately, the only way out of that labyrinth is grace, is mercy, is God, the Lord himself. So after all of the sending in chapter 11, note how chapter 12 begins. The Lord sent. Same verb. This chapter is about the Lord. Indeed, in chapter 11, the Lord's name is mentioned once. In chapter 12, the Lord's name is, occurs on, uh, 13 times. We do not need to lose sight of the grace, the mercy in these opening words. Now, God's pursuing grace, God's pursuing mercy may not always feel comfortable. But imagine a world where mercy didn't pursue. What if all the Lord did here was remain silent? But the Lord sent. And here he sent the court prophet. Now let me just say here for a moment, if you feel that there is someone in your life that's almost like a pest to you, that person has discerned some blind spots in your life or are patterns of sin that you may be oblivious to or perhaps have even hardened yourself towards, maybe it needs to occur to you that the Lord has sent that person to you. Grace is not always comfortable, but it flows out of the love of our God. And notice when Nathan comes to David, it says, He came to him and said to him, well, There were two men in a certain city. Now he's telling him a story. Maybe even you could call this a parable, like Jesus would often tell, to, to capture our affections and to prepare our hearts for the, the kingdom truths that he wants to convey. And so he says, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks. Now again, this is clearly a metaphor for David. And the flocks refer to his, his brides, his harem. Now, God is not sanctioning a harem here. We'll talk more about that. But it was the reality of things. He had a harem. And he had many flocks and herds. But the poor man, who obviously represents Uriah the Hittite, had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. 
He used to eat of his morsel and drink from this cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now we can trust our English translations. We have wonderful translations. But the English in this particular case cannot fully capture the mastery of this story. That word daughter there is the word bath in Hebrew. You would spell it in English, B-A-T-H, the first element in the name Bathsheba. Of course, we know that Bathsheba was not Uriah's daughter, but this is a story. Don't press the details too far. He is seeking to capture David's attention and his emotions and affections here. Verse 4 says, Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, it takes some kind of courage for a person to come to a king who has already murdered a member of his entourage. But this is a point for all of us who at some point are going to be called to speak truth. When the Lord calls you to speak a word of truth, he is present with those whom he calls to do so, as he is with Nathan here. Now notice in verse 5, we see that the Lord is at work as he has called Nathan to this scary task. Verse 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, the man that Nathan just told about. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. You know, the judgmental soul owns a thousand microscopes, but no mirrors. And that's David here. Remarkably, after breaking most every commandment of the Ten Commandments in chapter 11 without any repentance, David conveniently here appeals to the law. Now, what law is he appealing to? Well, Exodus 22.1, if a man steals an ox or a sheep, he shall repay four sheep for a sheep. That's what David is appealing to here. So David can clearly see the speck of sin in the guy with the lambs, but he cannot see the log of murder and adultery in himself. And that's what sin does. Sin blinds. It gives us a great capacity to see the sins of others without being able to see it in ourselves. But David here goes beyond the law penalty of four to one restitution, and he calls for this man's death. More importantly here, Nathan knows 
he has David where he wants him. Notice in verse 7, David, Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. Two words in Hebrew, but power punched. You are the man. And this is an example, incidentally, for all of us. At times, we need a Nathan to speak these words to us. At other times, we need to love God and our neighbor enough to speak these words into each other's lives. We need each other in that way. But wisely, Nathan doesn't just leave it at that. He immediately begins to lay out an itemized list of graces poured out on David. And so the two-word rebuke, you are the man, kind of sobered David up. It woke him up. But it's the graces that Nathan lays out to him that will ultimately melt him. Now, that's a point for us all, a point uh, for us as husbands and wives to each other, a point as parents, point as brothers and sisters to each other. It is going to be the graces that melts David. And these undeserved blessings that Nathan is going to lay out from the Lord had provided David with, first of all, notice, position. Second part of verse 7, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. Now, what is the point here? The point is, it was the Lord who had given David this very position that he had abused. Now, the Lord had given him that position as a stewardship, that he would express the reign, the glory of Yahweh in a righteous way. But... He had given him that position nonetheless, and now David had abused that position. He had also given David protection. Notice, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. David had so violently sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba, even though God had delivered David time and time again from the violence of Saul. He also had given him provision. Notice in verse 8, I gave you your master's house, that is Saul's house, and your master's wives into your arms and gave you your house, the house of Israel and of Judah. Now let me just speak to this a moment. We've already addressed this throughout Samuel. Genesis 2.24 drives the Old Testament narrative. One man and one woman. God never sanctions polygamy in the Old Testament. Every time we read about polygamy, there is dysfunction to follow. The writers are kind of winking at us as they speak of the reality of the distortion of marriage. Not only on top of that, Deuteronomy 17.17, 17, which was the law... God had said that his future kings would not multiply wives. And so the Lord isn't sanctioning polygamy here, but the reality was that the custom in the ancient Near East was that the harem of the dead king would be inherited by his successor for their good, for their well-being, to have someone to care for them. So there's no evidence 
in the scripture that David ever, ever married Saul's harem, but they were entrusted to his care. And then notice it says, and if this were too little, I will add to you as much more. I would have given you so much more than even what I've already given you. The Lord had loaded David down with good things. God is not a holdout. And the weeds of lust, the weeds of coveting and discontentment cannot and do not thrive in hearts that know and believe this. And incidentally, here we are given, I believe, a key strategy for fighting temptation and sin. And it's in this. It's in taking daily inventory in all the ways that the Lord has blessed us. It's in remembering daily His works of old. We should rehearse His goodness. We should rehearse His mercy every day. And what that will do, it will fuel our capacity towards gratitude and contentment, which cuts lust and temptation at its roots. And so, for instance, Psalm 92, the psalmist says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night. Why is it good? Because God is worthy of gratitude. He is worthy of praise. But as we give thanks to Him, as we muse upon His goodness to us, those, those deeds that He has done for us, those grace gifts that He has poured out on us, works deep in our souls. And what, that, what happens there is that it, it works out the discontentment. It works out the, the, the lust and the, and the tendency towards temptation of sinister things. We can't, even, we can't even get through a meal without thanking the Lord, right? We begin our meals with gratitude. We thank Him for our incisors and bicuspids that we, that we have in order to eat. Even our taste buds, everything that God has given us speaks to his goodness and his bounty. And so remembering God's works, remembering his blessing, remembering his bounty on us is a means to fight sin. But here, it's also the means towards repentance. God's bounty, God's grace is a means towards repentance. Del Ralph Davis says that treachery may only appear hideous when viewed against the fidelity it has despised. Such powerful words, such a good word. It may only appear hideous when viewed against the fidelity it has despised. And Nathan is reminding David of the fidelity that he has despised, God's faithfulness to him. And this helps make sense of Nathan's next question. Notice in verse 9, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. Now David has committed all kinds of treache uh, tre uh, treachery here. He's committed adultery. He's uh, connived a conspiracy. He has killed Uriah the Hittite. But the most fundamental sin was his idolatrous contempt 
and disregard of the Lord's revealed word. You have despised the word of the Lord. Now that word despised is a key word in Samuel. We first saw it in 1 Samuel 2 when Eli's house despised the Lord. And then we saw it in chapter 10 when it says that these these worthless sons, these worthless men had despised God's king Saul. Then we saw it in chapter 17 when, when Goliath, the Philistine champion, despised the Lord of hosts, despised Israel and David. And then we see it in 2 Samuel 6 when it says Michael despised David as he was worshiping the Lord as they made their way into Jerusalem. And now, of all people, David is the one doing the despising. David is in sin's labyrinth. Well, notice in the second part of verse 9, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Notice, this is a word for us all. To despise the word, verse 9, is to despise God himself. And there's ways to despise the word besides just outright rebellion to the word. We despise the word when we have no interest in the word. When we have no concern about opening it up and seeing what it says. When the word bores us and when the word seems inconsequential. Preachers despise the word when they do not exposit the text, when they do not trust in the Word's authority, when they do not trust in the sufficiency of Scripture, that they feel like they have to be creative in order to draw people in. Despising the Word is to despise God Himself. And that's why Proverbs 13, 13 says, whoever despises the Word brings destruction on himself. Horrifying words, but words of wisdom. And notice in verse 10, because you have despised the word, because you have despised me, the Lord, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now, in chapter 7, verse 15, God promised that David, his steadfast love, would not depart from David and his family. But here, he says the sword will not depart from David's family. Can God's word be double-edged? Absolutely. But in particular, David's house was at the heart of the word of the Lord that he had despised. We have to read chapters 11 and 12 in light of chapter 7, where God came to David and made covenant with David. House is the key word in 2 Samuel 7. We saw that. It's used 15 times. In 10 of those times, 
it refers to David's dynasty that would be an everlasting kingdom. In fact, house here, I think, is the key to understanding what God is doing here. So the punishment on David corresponds to the immediate crime. David is taking ownership of his house when he's only a steward. And so God is going to bring discipline on that very thing. Notice in verse 11. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Now, does God unilaterally cause evil? Of course not. He is of purer eyes than to behold evil. Psalm 5 tells us he hates evil. And yet, we have to recognize the cross is the great example of this, that God is sovereign over evil. And so he says in verse 11, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Robert Louis Stevens, Stevenson said, Everybody, sooner or later, sits down to a banquet of consequences. And so as the Lord had promised to raise up David's offspring spring and, would be, and this would become David's house, we saw that in chapter 7, God will now raise up evil against David out of his own house. As the Lord had promised to establish David's house for the sake of Israel, chapter 7, now David's discipline will take place before all of Israel. Indeed, in contrast to David's hidden sin, he thought it was hidden, the Lord will act openly to show his impartiality when it comes to judgment. And the remainder of 2 Samuel really is that. And 1 and 2 Kings for that matter. The remainder of 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings will unfold the horrific story anticipated here. Now, to David's credit, at this point, and perhaps we could just say God's grace on David, he doesn't even try to rationalize about the charges or even deny them. And that brings us to the second point of this passage. We've seen mercy's pursuit. Here, we see mercy's miracle. Notice me in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. In Ian Murray's wonderful book, The Old Evangelicalism, he writes these words. He says, Wheresoever God works with power for salvation upon the minds of men, there will be some discoveries 
of a sense of sin, of the danger of the wrath of God. The knowledge of God does not first come to sinners with comfort. <clears throat> Rather, it is intensely disturbing. You get that. It doesn't come first as comfort. It comes to sinners as something very disturbing. And here it is. In David's confession and repentance is penned in two words in the Hebrew. Nathan's words to David of rebuke, you are the man, two words in Hebrew. In David's response, two words in Hebrew. And I want you to notice something. This is important for us to understand. It did not come until he was busted. It did not come until he was exposed and found out. There are many people today that are very suspicious of someone who has repented if they did not repent until they were found out. In other words, they think the only reason this person has any kind of show of contrition is that they were busted, they were found out. And certainly there are false repentances. No one denies that. But here, David's repentance came only after he was busted. And at this point, his baby has been born, and so most scholars believe it's been a year since the offense. This man, after God's own heart, the man who had the Holy Spirit, did not repent for a year. But he repents. So when we are busted for our sins, sometimes that is God's means of grace leading us to godly sorrow, contrition, and repentance. But admittedly, it seems so brief and it seems so disproportionate to the evil he committed. It seems too easy. If you're like me, and then this is a tendency I have to fight, all right? If you're like me, I would have preferred him to beg. I would have preferred him to wallow in his guilt. He cheated on his wife. He or cheated on Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and he killed Uriah. And that's why I want him to beg for it and to plead. But if that is my response, if that is your response, we wrongly assume that the intensity of his emotions are the number of his words somehow contribute to atonement. And they don't. It's simple and to the point. And yet, and we're going to see this more next week, very real, very sincere. David's confession and repentance in two words is legit. And Nathan recognized that. Notice in the second part of verse 13. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. We need to understand something here. The judgment on David here in his house is not the most remarkable thing recorded in this text. It's these words. 
the Lord has taken, has put away your sin. These are the most remarkable words spoken to any repentant believer, for that matter. With all of David's sins, with all of our sins, for that matter, those who have confessed and repented and trusted, the Lord has taken those sins away. But that does become one of the great questions of the Bible. How can a God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, how can he just take away our wickedness, take away our sin? Well, we're going to talk a bit more about it next week. We're going to be looking at Psalm 51 next week. But David here is saved. Now, I do believe he was already saved. And one of the marks of someone who is saved is when they're confronted with their sins, they repent. Repentance is, is like a, uh, a, a sign of life, right? But David is saved like every other Old Testament believer was saved. Hebrews 9.22 tells us, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so, for instance, most particularly on the Day of Atonement, you had one goat substitute that would, would die in the place of the people, and his blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat, which in Greek is hilasterion, which we translate propitiation. God is satisfied. God's wrath is satisfied through this substitute who dies in the place of the people. His wrath is propitiated. But then there was another goat. And the priest would symbolically transfer the sins of the people onto this goat and then cast the goat out into the wilderness, never to be seen before. That represented expiation. The guilt of the people was taken away. That's the language here. And so atonement involved propitiation and expiation. Of course, we know there's someone greater who came that the ceremonial system or the sacrificial system pointed to. And Hebrews tells us in 9 verse, uh, verse 15, a death has occurred that redeems them, that is, Old Testament saints from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You see the point there. They were saved the same way you and I are saved. By grace alone, through faith alone, in this final sacrifice alone, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that sacrificial system pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice. David is forgiven. And yet, the text drives home, and this is so important for us, for all of us, that forgiveness does not remove the temporal effects of sin. There are temporal consequences to our sin. And part of the reason why that is, is that even as we are redeemed by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
So great is that sin, the hold of that sin on our affections, that even when God forgives us in Jesus, he disciplines us. He disciplines our our disobedience at the same time as a father does a son. And it's intriguing, but you know, this text is a proof text for two different polar opposite kinds of skeptics. Those who do not love the God of Scripture. On one side are those who believe it's wrong for God to be so merciful to someone like David. For God to forgive people like David when David really doesn't do anything to deserve that. He just confesses and repents. But that perspective is to devalue mercy, to think that we can actually do something to earn mercy, to do something to earn grace. Think about this. If you gave me an emerald cut sapphire ring, but you wanted me to wash your car in response, that act of washing your car devalues that ring because that ring is much more costly than a car wash. But if you give me that ring at your own personal expense and I have nothing to offer you in return, that magnifies the worth of that ring. That's mercy. And that's the mercy on David. And it's the mercy on us. But on the flip side, there are others who look at the judgments here on David. And they will say something like this. How can God be so harsh? To this point, when we say, I can't believe in a God who would, and then fill in the blank, we're saying, here's what we're saying when we say that, we really don't want a God beyond our comprehension. Furthermore, as R.W. Dale says, it is partly... Because sin does not provoke our own wrath. That we do not believe that sin should provoke the wrath of God. So we need to keep these ideas in tension. A very important tension here. Grace is free for us. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. It's free in that we can't do anything to earn grace. But it's not cheap. It's costly. It cost the Son of God the humiliating cross. Conversely, sin is very cheap. But it's not free. It's not free. You can go into the sin market and buy it for cheap. David did. But the cost came like a bad credit card. Well, notice in verse 14, as we close this out, we see the cost. He's already spoken to it. The Lord has taken away, put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned The Lord, the child who is born to you, 
shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. No one should be undisturbed by this pronouncement that David's evil would be responsible for the death of his child. And none of us have comfortable or comprehensive answers to the questions that arise here. And we will speak more to this next time we're in 2 Samuel 12. But suffice to say here, we need to be very careful about passing self-righteous judgment on God's ways. We may not understand all His ways. In fact, we don't understand the large majority of His ways. But we do know this. Psalm 18, verse 30. This God, His way is perfect. We trust that by faith. Or Deuteronomy 34, verse 4. His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. We rest in that when we can't make sense of what He's doing. And this reality that His ways are right, His ways are just, that reality is greater than our discomfort and our pain. But it's also crucial to say here that prophet, the prophet Nathan was bringing a new word of authoritative revelation to David. We have no prophets like that today. There is no new word of authoritative revelation today. Book 66 has been closed. The canon is closed. And so if we want to hear God's voice, we open up our Bible. And therefore, no one can come to another person to say, because of your sin, the judgment has fallen on this person. Furthermore, covenant heads in Scripture experienced unique things. So, for instance, Adam was a covenant head. And because of his sin, all the tears in the world fell on humanity. All the brokenness fell on all of his children who would descend from David. Abraham was a covenant head. And God calls Abraham to lay his son on the altar. Never again would, would God call a person to lay their son on the altar. It was to communicate something glorious about redemption. And so we know that about Adam. We know that about Moses, uh, or Abraham. We also know it about Moses. Moses, because of his one act of sin, striking the rock twice, he could not enter the promised land. It was to communicate something about the justice and the holiness of God. Something unique takes place with the covenant heads in here. In the rest of 2 Samuel, David experiences severer temporal judgment than any murderer or adulterer in history. Roger Ellsworth says, by severe judgment on David, God would show the surrounding nations, we might even add, would show Israel, that he was still a righteous God, even when his people failed to be righteous. But here, David won't die from this. He had committed a sin whose only stated penalty was death. Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 22. And yet the Lord sovereignly promised 
that this king who deserved death would not die. But the son of David would die. He dies in David's place. It's as if the child would serve as David's substitute. Again, this is one of a kind. We are confronted here with a picture, albeit a painful picture, that should stir our hearts, imagination, and affections towards God's love for us in His Son, the greater David, and should provoke a hatred for the sin that nailed him to the cross. The son of David dies so that David doesn't have to. And yet surely David would have gladly, willingly died in the place of his son that speaks of the pathos of this reality. And it should provoke us to hate our sin that's behind the death of the son of David, the far-off son of David to come. And it should cause us to marvel at how wonderful and how marvelous God's love for us is in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that even in difficult texts like this, we see mercy, we see grace. We pray that the mercy and grace conveyed here would stir us all to the obedience of faith in a more fervent way, to hate our sin and to love our Savior. And I pray if there's any who've never trusted in the Savior who's watching this morning, Lord, today, that they would just finally do as David did and confess, I have sinned. And I deserve your judgment. But I am trusting that you have made provision for my judgment. Not in this baby who died, but in the far off son of David who would come and die for sin. We pray today would be the day of salvation for many who hear that message. And we, see, we ask these things in the name of the Son of God, Son of David. Amen. Cast me not away
from thy presence, O Lord. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation, O Those words from Psalm 51 are relevant to us, that he would always be creating in us a clean heart. And particularly after hearing from 2 Samuel chapter 12 today and hearing how David was confronted with his sin. And yet we see the difference in how David responded with, compared to earlier in the narrative how Saul responded when he was confronted. David responded with repentance. Um, and so... We bless the Lord for the gift of repentance. And so today, I'm sure uh, many of us have some soul searching and want to go spend some time with the Lord and be being convicted from uh, what we've heard today from the Word. But we're glad that you joined us. Glad that you, uh, if you're our guest and you're dropping in um, over, uh, over the Internet to our streaming service, we're so glad that you have. And there are a number of ways you can get in touch with us, website, email, etc. And those things will be posted for you after we conclude our service here. But let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer and conclude and just thank the Lord for time to, to be together, but with an asterisk by it. Still grateful that we can uh, have a service and hold a service like this and pray that you were blessed today. Let's go to him now. Father, we do come to you and want to pray and just thank you for your word and its sufficiency, its goodness. Um, that when it's sung, when it's said, when it's preached, when it's declared, and when it's met with saving faith, 
and the faith that is wrought in the heart of every son and daughter, the work that you do by your spirit through your word in our lives, even today with conviction of how David waited till he was confronted and yet responding rightly when confronted with our sin is I, I repent. And then David writes Psalm 51, um, a precious and tender and painful at the same time, yet comforting text for believers in the one true God now for 3,000 years. I pray that we would always be a people who are quick to confess and quick to believe and quick to honor you and to put the graces of God in the forefront of our minds. And as Brian prayed earlier, the expulsatory power of a greater affection. May that mark all of us evermore today as we've heard your word and sung together, even as we're scattered today. Uh, Bless these saints now as they continue another week of quarantine. We pray for our leaders that you'd give them wisdom to act rightly and to um, make right and just and wise decisions. We lift them up to you, our governor, mayor, and all the others, our president from the national level down to the local level. We pray that you would give them uh, mercy. Pray that you would draw them to yourself when they don't know you. Pray that you would give them wisdom because a people are blessed when there is wisdom demonstrated in leaders. And so we pray for them. We pray for that. Help us to be wise. Help us to go from this time um, loving you more and having a greater reverence and a holy fear of God and yet a greater affection for Christ and what he has accomplished. So we give you thanks today and we bless your name and we do so by your spirit who indwells us through the Son who is interceding for us now to you, our great God and Father. And we pray all these things. Amen. You are dismissed.